and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. Today, I'll be your producer, Gavin Tolomedi, and I'll be joined with hosts Yimin Chen and Yusuf Hassan. We have a special virtual Western Research Forum, three parts for you today, and this will be part one, featuring guests Navid Gill, Jacqueline Seagull, Kimberly Adamek, and Marzia Sadiji. They unfortunately were not able to present at this year's Western Research Forum due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Without further ado, let's get on to the first guest. Okay, hello. Welcome to GradCast's online coverage of the Western Research Forum, which didn't really happen this year. Uh, my name is Yimin Chen. I'll be one of your hosts today, and I'm joined with my co-host. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And today we are here with Navjit Jill. So welcome to our show. Thank you. So tell us uh, about your background and how you came to be interested in the research you've recently done. So um, my background is in actually um, in physical therapy. So I have an undergrad degree in physiotherapy and from there working with seniors in long-term care, I just kind of came across this idea of how much easier it is on the health, like less burden on healthcare if we have people living in the community as compared to transitioning into um, long-term care. And this was just like a very um, little idea that just kind of floated around. And then I got in touch for a master's with my um, current supervisor. She does re um, research in the field of aging. And from there, this, kind, this idea just kind of um, built up of how to possibly look into factors which influence health-seeking behavior of older adults and how that could potentially affect their aging in place in the long run. Okay, and so what program are you doing your master's in? So um, I am in the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences program in the field of um, physical therapy, and it's my second year. Okay. So um, just wrapping it up and hoping to defend by the end of next month. All right, fingers crossed. Yes. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so enough and um, tell us what, you, uh, could you elaborate a bit more on what you mean by health-seeking behaviors, especially as it pertains to older adults? And also, how does that relate to wellness or well-being dimensions? Okay, so basically health-seeking behavior um, when it comes to older adults, or in general, it, it just means that the actions that you take reflecting that, yes, I may have an illness or this potentially poses as a threat to my health, taking those steps to reach out to healthcare services, um, community support services, to take action before that illness actually manifests itself and becomes something that is kind of out of your control, especially as an older adult, when there are so many other chronic conditions that are underlying. Um, and in terms of um, this correlating to well-being and dimensions of wellness, so that was the whole point of our study was to kind of see if health-seeking behavior does have any relation with dimensions of wellness, because dimensions of wellness potentially are six to seven dimensions which are interdependent and through their interdependent and interlinking, um, it leads to a healthy living or in terms of older adults, it possibly leads to aging in a healthy manner. So we wanted to see if health-seeking behavior could possibly be influenced by these factors and if there was some link between them. Unfortunately, our results didn't yield much in terms of this. We were able to find that if um, older adults are more aware of the community support services. They do have better health-seeking behavior, but unfortunately the study did not reveal any connection between dimensions of wellness and health-seeking behavior in older adults. Um, I was just wondering, so 
um, perhaps it didn't reveal exactly what you were hoping for right now, but in doing or conducting the study, did it reveal something that would still help you to or guide you to conduct some other kinds of researches to get to what you really desire? Mm -hmm. So um, that's actually a really good question, and that did, that is something that came up uh, when we were reviewing the literature. Even recent reviews in 2017 throughout 2019, they show that wellness and health-seeking behavior itself is a very complex um, construct. It's very difficult to dismantle it. There's so many factors that interplay. So we're hoping that our uh, our research, even though it didn't necessarily tell that it is effective, it did kind of clear up the mud a little bit of that does make sense to kind of like, okay, yeah, so these are not the factors. Is there any other way, any other combination of these factors which could potentially help us understand health-seeking behavior relatively more than previous literature shows? Thank you. Cool. Uh, so you mentioned um, you were looking at dimensions of wellness um, in this study mm -hmm. and unfortunately didn't find a lot of connection there. Uh, can you tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about like what these dimensions are and why um, did you think going into it that it might be connected to uh, health-seeking behavior? So um, dimensions of wellness, the model that we're using is proposed by the International Council of Active Aging. So it mm -hmm. consists of seven dimensions. There's social well-being, spiritual well-being, physical, vocational, intellectual, and environmental. Sorry, I went over that way too fast. But yeah, there are these seven dimensions. Okay. Um, for our study, we could not include vocation and intellectual because for our study, we needed participants who were intellectually or cognitively intact. Mm -hmm. And for vocation, we were recruiting 65 years and older. So we were recruiting from date like um, centers, like community centers, um, senior centers. So it was kind of given that they would be retired or either working as a volunteer. So the other five dimensions that are left. So for, for the first one is physical. So um, it says that in order for you to have like age successfully, which um, you need to have a good physical component, like you should be physically well. So for that, we decided to look at their physical functions and we found a very specific outcome measure and uh, we measured their physical function. The second dimension that we looked at was environment. For environment, we decided to focus on fall risk, which basically is situated within your environment. For that, mm -hmm. again, we um, this study of uh, just to kind of, is strictly quantitative, so there was no qualitative um, data collected. Um, the third one that we used was spirituality and social well-being, and the last one was resilience. So these were our five factors which we had um, rooted in the seven dimensions of wellness. And just to kind of add on top, we added awareness of community sports services. So we just felt like, for example, I'll give you an example with physical function. What we hypothesized was that if someone feels their physical function is declining, then they would go out and have a better health-seeking behavior because they realize, okay, yes, my physical function is declining. I need help from specific health services. But unfortunately, that was not the case. That is not what our findings revealed. So this is how we were hoping to link all these dimensions with health-seeking behavior. For example, for environmental, if they felt that, yes, I am at risk of falling now that I'm growing older, my physical function is declining, we would expect, we hypothesize that they would reach out to community sports services to assist them in rearranging their home, making sure there are no um, risks to them falling. But again, nothing was revealed within the study. So, so on and so forth. This is how we hoped, hypothesized that the dimensions would be related to health-seeking behavior. 
But like I have mentioned before, um, we did not find any specific correlation in, except for awareness of health seeking, awareness of community support services, which okay. did show that as an older adult, if you are aware that these um, services exist, you would have better health seeking behavior, which is like kind of, I guess that is kind of a given that if you know these services exist, you are more likely to go out and reach out to them and use them. So, um, am I correct in understanding that in your study, you found that even um, for the older adults who are aware of some um, perhaps uh, deficiencies or, or issues in some of these other dimensions, um, even if they mm -hmm. knew that the, there were some issues there, they did not then go and seek help or assistance or, or other um, services that way? They believe that, um, uh, so we couldn't interpret it at such a minute level. It was more right. so being there function overall and then comparing it from the scores we got for health seeking behavior so that was a questionnaire itself and we ran a multiple um regression mm -hmm. with health seeking behavior as a dependent variable and um from that we this is what we assume that even if they feel like their physical function is low yep. they won't necessarily feel that it's necessary for them to go out and look for services to assist them with that Right. And so the only thing that seemed to have a connection was how aware they were of the services yep. available. Yep. Okay. So the more aware they were of um, the community sports services available in the city of London, mm -hmm. the better their health behavior score was. So there was a strong positive correlation between these two. Okay. So then um, does your study suggest, or, or could you potentially interpret those results as perhaps an, a need um, to highlight the importance of awareness of these sorts of services? Yep, um, studies uh, even conducted within um, Canadian populations do show that older adults are not that aware of community sports services. And mm -hmm. there are various underlying factors for this, like they don't feel the need to know, they depend on their family and friends. Um, sometimes our healthcare system is so, um, it's not that interconnected. It's very difficult for them to navigate the healthcare system. So they don't even reach to that point where they want to get out there and be bothered. I put that in air quotes because that's how they mentioned it, that they don't even want to bother going out there. And even when I was chatting with the participants while they were filling out the form, some of them did say, oh, well, you know, my friend had an experience where they had a PSW come home and then this, this, this happened. And then like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. And I will never, ever reach out to community sports services. So there is a lot of work that still needs to be done in terms of understanding why there is such a lack of awareness. And there are also studies which are focusing on how healthcare providers can actually facilitate linkages of older adults to community sports services. So yes, there is a lot that needs to be still be done in terms of raising awareness for older adults and the community sports services available. I was wondering, so what led you to, or what motivated you to extend the well-being dimensions to include in the first place uh, the community support services awareness or accessibility? And it, it, that, that is a really interesting dimension as you put it as well. Um, what are the sort of difficulties that people, adult, older adults actually face in actually not only knowing that they such Mm -hmm. you know, facilities or services exist, but also mm -hmm. that um, they're easily accessible and they're, 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 no, they're not too much difficulties to actually get that help. 
So um, this would be just added this on on top because there's a lot of literature that shows that older adults prefer to stay in their own homes for as long as possible because it has a meaning oh, yeah. to them. It is very, you ask any older adults and their first reaction would be look, no, I do not want to move into a long-term care. Oh, yes. We still have a fragment of population, I think around 11% of older adults over the age of 85, which are transitioning into long-term care. So mm -hmm. we, and then there is all this literature which shows that there's so many community support services available. Um, within the city of London, we were able to come up with 78 community support services. And this is just the top of the iceberg. There's so many of them available. But the literature shows a disconnect between the availability and the use of community support services. So this is what kind of triggered us. Like we were trying to understand that why, despite their desire to age in place, they're not using these services. And then um, going on to your um, question about what other difficulties um, older adults face, um, like I mentioned, um, older adults, first of all, sometimes they're not aware. Second, they usually rely on family and friends. And this kind of becomes difficult for older adults who do not have that kind of social support around them who can guide them in the right direction. Then most of our databases are now that are coming up in Ontario are relatively online databases. So like 211helpline.ca, um, Seniors Info, these all are online. And there is this thing where technology does become a bit of a barrier, especially for older adults to navigate. And then adults who do make it up to the point where they're reaching out to community support services, they feel like they're not, they say that the treatment or the, services they're getting is very cookie cutter in nature, meaning that they do not take them as a person into consideration. It's more so, okay, well, this happened with that other person. So these are the services we're gonna to provide to you. They do not understand that not every person has the same situation. There are differences that need to be considered. So yeah, these are these were the couple of um, issues that come up when accessing community sports services. Thank you. All right, well, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for taking the time to share some of your research with us today. No, thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank okay, you. that was Namshad Gill. She was a master's student in health and rehabilitation sciences, uh, graduating quite soon. So uh, all the best of luck to you there, Namshad. Hello, everybody. Back again with our online coverage of the Western Research Forum. My name is Yiman Chen. I'll be one of your hosts today. And I am joined with my good friend, Yusuf. Hello. Well, hi, I'm Yusuf. I'm your co-host. And today we have Kim Adamek here as well to tell us well how she was inter got interested in, in wind engineering and what her current project is about. So welcome, Kim. Hello. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to be here. Um, it's nice that you guys did this, especially since the, the forum was canceled. Um, so that's, that's nice. <laughs> uh, so thank you for having me. That's great. I think you're the first wind engineer we've had on the show. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit more about like, what does that mean? Um, all right. So wind uh, engineering, uh, obviously wind impacts a lot of different things. Um, most notably, we kind of only really think of wind when it's extreme. So with tornadoes, hurricanes, or the opposite end of the spectrum is like wind energy. So wind turbines. Okay. Um, I do none of that research. So those are all like, there's a lot of topics. Uh, 
There's also um, wind, how it impacts like buildings, like how they move. Um, wind in terms of like air pollution, natural ventilation, um, pretty much how it interacts with buildings and then how that interacts with us. So um, that's kind of where I focus on, but it is a very, very broad topic because we're obviously always surrounded by air and wind um, and it, you know, runs the, the whole world that connects us also. Um, that's kind of a brief uh, description of it. Wow, very cool. So then uh, your research interests, did you say specifically, are in, is this in the, uh, the area of how wind interacts with cities? Yes. Um, so my background is actually in, I did my undergrad and my master's in architecture. Um, okay. Uh, so within architecture, we look at how, you know, to design buildings and spaces that not only work, but um, they like make a comfortable and safe space for people. So the building and how you move through it functions like the way that you live. Mm -hmm. um, so on a site visit, I saw how actually the like when new buildings were built, it changed the wind around this a certain site. And I started to wonder like, oh, like, is there a way we could have kind of anticipated that or or especially like if you want it you only really notice notice wind when it's bad like when it's not when it kind of disrupts your life so when you want to have a patio in a certain space or when you're trying to walk and you can't like in, in extreme areas so um then i came to find wind engineering obviously which is like the science aspect of how it actually works and functions mm -hmm. um so yeah so that then i learned how buildings when they interact with the wind and the wind interacts with the building, you actually change the whole flow, um, which is, is kind of cool. Right. And so in your abstract, you mentioned that, um, you know, there was a problem of maybe really fast winds and it wasn't so helpful or good for the pedestrians that were there. So in, in effect, the buildings really helped in slowing down the wind. Of course, this led to a new problem so tell us about this new problem and how your research might be helpful in terms of having designs that can take care of this new problem as well. Uh, yeah, so in the last few years we were seeing with tall buildings, they were redirecting high speed winds down uh, to the ground, which was like blowing people off their feet, um, making areas like inaccessible, uh, things like that. So that became like the new issue with taller buildings. But then what actually happens with a lot of wind wind tests is that we're only really looking at like one problem and to solve one problem but because as i was saying that like wind wind impacts a lot of things like ventilations pollutants um if we like if we layer uh not just looking at high speed winds at street in terms of uh blowing people over but also how that wind can blow and take out pollutants in the air we're noticing that okay if there's low wind speeds and then a lot of pollutants are coming out of like if there's a parking lot so uh, exhaust from cars or exhaust from buildings um that actually can create areas of um like really really uh high pollutant concentration so you have really poor air quality um obviously uh, if a lot of people aren't going in that area, it's not going to be that big of a problem. So you have to take all this information and layer it. So where are people walking? Where do you want the winds to be slower? But then also if, if exhaust, like pollutants are being exhausted in that same area, you have to kind of uh, find a balance between what's good enough to bring those pollutants out of the city, but also um, not too much wind that it's uh, making people uncomfortable and unsafe, like in unsafe conditions. 
so are you trying to find kind of like the sweet spot of how much wind is is just right for for our cities yes so there's definitely a mix between because obviously if you plan a city with certain areas that maybe those are pedestrian areas or mm -hmm. uh so there's obviously different ways of uh, dealing with this problem but from our point of view we're trying to find yes the sweet spot where how how much wind do we need um and how can we yeah use it to our benefit if we realize that buildings are in fact like impacting how it moves i was wondering um how uh, aware are people about this issue that that building designs cause in terms of having more pollution for example and do people really put in the effort in the design by investing i, I suppose it sometimes might be more expensive to construct those buildings with the particular design you may have in mind and they might be like somewhat reluctant and they might, like, they might just say oh it's okay it's a bit of pollution is okay and not really take care about it i guess i was thinking about this in terms of how people often are reluctant to even take care of making buildings accessible for for people and that is a huge problem so of course they might be also reluctant in this way as well so could you tell us what you have seen and what you think we can do to sort of create better awareness about the situation? Um, so one of the hardest things with um, getting wind or other like climatic parameters incorporated in buildings is that you can't see the wind. So it's definitely mu like one of the hardest things to convince people matters unless there's a problem. Um, but that being said, obviously we've seen a shift with like the emphasis on climate change and how much buildings actually like the building uh, sector contributes overall to to climate change in general and greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so people are starting to well, let's say governments are starting to implement like building codes and different kind of requirements for people to actually study the wind. Mm -hmm. um, and there are like wind engineering companies that specialize in studying certain buildings and what their impacts are. Um, but what happens a lot of the time is, um, say you, you've designed one building shape and it's a circle and you get it, maybe you get a circle and then a square studied um, and then you kind of find out the best option, you come back, but say later on within the design process, um, something changes, like very rarely unless it's significant does it come back um, to get tested again because it is so expensive. Um, so I think having a little bit more knowledge on the design side um, would help people be more prepared when they're going to get things tested so that the building actually functions as it should and it's doing what you want it to when, um, when you're designing it and then follow that through to when it's being built. Thank you. So, so I'm kind of curious, um, how do you study this sort of thing? Uh, like what does your research look like in, in sort of more practical terms? Um, that, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, a lot of times, well, so we have something, especially at Western University, the Boundary Layer Wind Tunnel. It was one of the kind of first uh, tunnels in the world to actually t study buildings because mm -hmm. building wind tunnels are much different than wind tunnels for airplanes because the wind, as it nears the surface of the earth, uh, starts to slow down, so you get more turbulence. Okay. So, so that's like, you know, um, just more complicated wind let's say it's not straight um so 
uh, we can study, we technically scale the buildings down. So we make them smaller. And then in the wind tunnel, um, you have like little probes that, that measure actually the pressure of the wind. So like when air is changing over these kind of sensors, um, and then you can visualize that on a, on, on a computer, right? Taking all that data, processing it. But within the last decade or so, obviously people have been working on also using a computational, uh, fluid dynamic simulations. Um, Obviously, you know, there's always debate about if you can actually rely on it, but you can use the wind tunnel. So the thing that everyone agrees works and can actually um, accurately analyze the wind. So take that and then um, use it to validate the simulations you're doing. So to prove that you can actually do a lot more, if you want, like, say, m like 20 building shapes, even 100 building shapes, um, you can do it much faster than having to physically build it in a wind tunnel. Mm -hmm. right on the computer and these days the computer is actually like much more accessible obviously than getting a wind tunnel right. um so at least in initial initial design phases um being able to test like do these simulations on uh computers and at western we have also like sharknet the supercomputers um so those also help us process like much more data faster and then we can go to the wind tunnel um which is extremely reliable um to either validate or to do like a final test on it. That's um, cool. So Kim, tell us about, um, I mean, I, I was wondering what are the kinds of difficulties that you might face in implementing some of the uh, really um, beneficial designs that you may have in mind? Well, the difficulty is definitely in, um, so every project, any building you place anywhere on the world is very specific to where it is. Mm. So wind is almost always a case by case basis, like how the wind is interacting with your building. Um, say, and you know, every kind of aspect of your building shape or how close it is to other buildings changes how the wind is. Um, so the part, the thing it, that we're trying to create is like a framework to relate um, yeah, these different topics. So air quality, like ventilation, PLW, but also through different scales. So like, yeah, what an earlier study that we did found that if you have like a new building built, say like right where I am, um, areas like even blocks away can act, their winds can actually change even further away. So you have like a large impact. Um, so we're trying to make a framework to at least give people a sense of like how wide or how small does one building like what 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 is its general impact so that um when you're going into designing a building you at least have in your periphery like all the things you kind of need to consider when you go in um but that is obviously overwhelming um so but at least to have the idea so not to just unconsciously design things without knowing uh what you may possibly impact um that's kind of what we're hoping um to help with uh, so that we're not just, yeah, we, we're not just unconsciously changing things. Great. So Kim, um, in the abstract that you had submitted to the Western Research Forum, yeah, you used the the metaphor of the city as an organism. Um, I, I think that's a really compelling image. But would you be able to explain that a little bit for us? Um, yeah. Uh, so. Uh, 
Yeah, we found this like kind of the easiest way to explain uh, how wind connects like every building or like the city is made up of obviously these multiple layers, not just these different wind topics. Um, so you have, you know, how sun access it, how people move around, how um, the building structures are, what programs these buildings are, right? Like how society actually functions. You have cultural, um, uh, like environmental, all these different parameters. So within like a human body, you have obviously these different systems, your skeletal system, circulatory system, respiratory system, your skin. Um, they all come together to form like they're uh, dependent on one another um, to create like one form. And so the city is, is the same thing. It's made up of like different elements and different buildings that play, play a role in the overall body of what is, what is the city. Um, and so we are trying to use this metaphor to really kind of drive home that when you build a building, it's not isolated. It doesn't exist on its own. It doesn't only impact itself. Once you have, like once it's input into like the DNA of the city, um, it, its impact is wide. Uh, so everything starts to talk to one another and they're all connected in multiple ways. Um, the easiest we see is like, you know, when you build a building and it, it maybe blocks the sun from another, mm -hmm. but we were trying to emphasize that that actually is changing also the wind, even if you don't, you don't see it. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, thank you, Kim, for, uh, making us more aware of the air we're in and yes. uh, for blowing us away with your fascinating <laughs> uh, I can't take credit for that joke. Uh, <laughs> that was inspired by our producer, Gavin Talametti. So thank you for that. But yeah, yes. that uh, we have been speaking with Kimberly Adamek, who is a PhD student in uh, studying wind engineering. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, thank you for continuing to join us uh, as GradCast covers the now canceled Western Research Forum online. Uh, my name is Zeman Chen, and I am joined today by my co-host. Well, uh, I'm your co-host Yusuf, and today we are here with Jacqueline Siegel. Uh, Jacqueline, we are interested to know how you came to be interested in the current project in social psychology uh, since you were first doing feminist identity or studying feminist identity? Yeah, so uh, feminist identity is inherently tied to body image. There are a number of both feminist scholars, feminist researchers, people who do feminist work, all of, all of the feministy things link back to the ways that women see their bodies in some degree at least, because we need to start our feminist activism kind of within ourselves. As Gloria Steinem says, it's a revolution from within. Um, and so I'm interested in particular in the ways that sociocultural pressures and expectations on people based on their gender influence the way that they perceive and kind of interact with their bodies. And so um, the, the piece that you had submitted to the Western Research Forum. Um, the title was a validation of a phenomenological measure of body shame. Um, could you just briefly like explain what does phenomenological mean? Yeah, so phenomenological means embodied or how it is felt, lived and experienced. So okay. oftentimes when we talk about shame in particular, or when we measure shame, we look at hypothetical kind of situations or in general, how do you do this? But we don't really capture what it feels like in your body to experience shame because emotions 
are kind of hard to measure and report on. So we tried to do this in a kind of novel way and uh-huh. we did it. <laughs> we validated <laughs> it, I promise. <laughs> so, okay. Well, I mean, can you uh, expand on, on these ideas of body shame a little bit? Like what, what kinds of things were you interested in um, in going into this study? Yeah. So shame is um, a self-conscious emotion. It kind of forms this conglomeration of self-conscious emotions. It's a part of uh, embarrassment, guilt, shame, and pride, all of which are emotions that appear in response to other emotions or in response to other sensations or experiences. So shame is unique and that it particularly refers to a sense of having not met a personal expectation or goal. So let's say that you think that you are supposed to look a certain way and then you feel like you don't, you may experience the phenomenon of shame about your body. So I'm interested in that in particular because shame is implicated as an outcome of objectification um, and sexual objectification for women's bodies in particular. So what objectification theory suggests is that sexual objectification of women's bodies becomes internalized and then that can result in shame, which can have downstream um, consequences on women's disordered eating, uh, sexual attitudes and depression down the road. But I wanted to specifically isolate and hone the phenomenon of shame because basically the way that we study it in my field doesn't actually capture what shame feels like. Uh, okay. So that's where this, this set of studies came in. So I, I was wondering that when you were studying shame, you must have, I mean, you must have seen some positive aspects of using shame as a tool in some other areas, for example, if you look at Greta Thunberg talking about climate issues, uh, that kind of shame is actually useful uh, to create some sort of awareness when it comes to climate concerns. But of course, that's not true when it comes to body shaming. So could you tell us what is um, maybe unique to body shaming and why it would be important for us to understand this phenomenon of body shaming? Sure. So I think it's important that we parse apart body shaming, like the act of shaming someone for their body and the phenomenon of feeling ashamed about your body. So research consistently suggests that shaming people for their bodies is a bad move. Um, Being teased for your body does not help your body image. It doesn't change your behaviors. It actually is associated with increased disordered eating and also um, weight gain. Don't shame people for their bodies for any stretch, for any reason. I myself am a survivor of a very pernicious eating disorder that I actually had to leave school for. Um, Some of that is due to body shaming. Don't body shame people. That is my (laughs) message. If you listen to nothing else about this, don't body shame people. Um, Yeah, it's important for us to understand the phenomenon of shame and how individual people feel about their bodies because um, it's implicated in disordered eating, body dysmorphia, the experience of gender dysphoria. Shame about our bodies has a host of negative ramifications for people who feel it. So how did you go about then um, trying to understand and measure this feeling of shame? I will not take credit for the original scale. We did not develop the scale, we just validated it. So the original scale was used in a 1998 paper from the original objectification theory researchers. And what they did in that study was they had people it's um, Barbara Fredrickson and colleagues. 
they had people come into the lab and stand in front of a mirror wearing either a swimsuit or a sweater. And then they reported their experience of shame um, after having been in either a sexually objectifying environment or not. And what they found was that people who were in the sexually objectifying environment or who wore a swimsuit in front of the mirror reported higher levels of body shame. And that's what that study is pretty widely known about. They've replicated it in men. Uh, it's kind of a classic in the field. But the scale that they used in that study, which was the phenomenological body shame scale, had never actually undergone um, any sort of tests of construct validation. And construct validation is important in our field because without knowing the psychometric properties of the scale, it's impossible to tell precisely what it is that we're measuring. So we wanted to go through the construct validation process with the scale to show that it is both a, valuable, a, a valid and reliable measure. Right. So, Jacqueline, despite the detrimental effects of body shaming, we seem to have these social structures that actually allow for this shaming to continue in, in, in ways that are um, extremely harmful. Why is that the case that we aren't able to fix those structures or even as individuals stop indulging in this sort of harmful practices that cause additional anxiety for, peop anxiety for people and, and so forth? Yeah, so there are two explanations that I think are equally valid and appropriate to discuss. When when we're talking about body shame, the first of which is sexism and the second of which is uh, kind of weightism or the conflation of weight and health. So when we talk about sexism, um, sexism being uh, discrimination and prejudice and stigma against people on the basis mm. of their gender, just putting it out there so that we all have common definition, um, mm. we can see that sexism is kind of braided into the fabric of our society. The way that we treat women's bodies um, we anticipate and we expect and we almost demand that they are beautiful and thin uh, and sexually pleasing to look at. And so women can internalize that and feel that they're not meeting impossible expectations. So it's very difficult to stop kind of feeling ashamed of your body when every message that's coming at you is basically telling you that you should feel ashamed of your body because you're never going to live up to these standards. Um, so I think that part of it is sexism that's woven into our society, but, and this isn't even something that we get into in the paper because it's, we need to tailor our papers to the journals that we're submitting them to and attacking research from two different social issues might be overload for the science community. But something that's important to discuss is the way that we use shame as a tool to motivate weight loss and the conflation of having a larger or not slim body and being in poor health, which is an erroneous um, correlation. There are people of all different body sizes who have all different health levels, and yet we as a society tend to look at people in larger bodies and say, oh, that's something that needs to be changed. You need to do something about your body. Um, so I think it's hard to stop internalizing and feeling those things because they're everywhere. We, we see fat shame all over the internet. We see it in commercials. We see it in magazines. And we also see the sexual objectification of women's bodies in all of those places as well. Um, and this isn't to suggest that men and gender minority people don't experience body shame. We know that they do, but it's just a different and gendered phenomenon that we see more intensely in women.
I guess that's why your main focus was for this, uh, for women, uh, body shaming involved with women, actually. Yeah, and we do have some studies that we're looking at down the line. So we did three studies for this particular paper, but we do have a study that's coming up that's looking at how it is that um, phenomenological body shame is experienced differently for people of different gender identities. However, research is uh, kind of stalled right now. <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, now that you you've uh, have some support, some evidence for validating um, these measurements uh, in this uh, scientific setting, um, what sort of what what can we do with these measurements? How is that going to help perhaps future research designs, future um, you know investigation into some of these very important issues? Yeah, so the phenomenon, well, not the phenomenon, but the experience of shame. And the, the study of shame is kind of ongoing. It's got a very rich tradition. There's a number of correlates that have already been identified um, by looking at shame. We can say people who experience body shame also experience um, you know, reduced sexual satisfaction, uh, reduced orgasm functioning, um, you know, more self-harm, lots of these things. However, now we can test these in a more valid and reliable measure um, of shame. Also, we can look at the way that phenomenological, specifically lived body shame, um, influences people's eating and um, kind of all these different well-being behaviors. Uh, what's neat about this particular scale is that it kind of blends state and trait level um, experiences of shame because the instructions encourage people to imagine that they're standing in front of a mirror. Um, and how it is that they're feeling in that particular moment, which looks at something like a state level. So it could be used in manipulations involving body shame and experiments looking at body shame, but you can also use it as a trait level variable. So we just think that it has a lot of utility and it really enhances um, the way that we study body shame. That's our main goal, to continue this legacy of studying body shame. And I think that future directions, we absolutely need to look at the way that body shame is implicated um, in men and in people of different sexual and gender minorities. Because as we, as we kind of talked about before this formal interview started, a lot of the research that is being done is on white women. And we know that we need to expand that out a little bit more. Right. Well, Jacqueline, I mean, I was wondering, given the unprecedented, unprecedented times and COVID-19, how do you think it might impact your research and further, maybe you might have some other sub-projects as well. Um, are you working on something else as well, given yeah. the situation? Um, actually, I hadn't even planned on talking about this because <laughs> okay. I just forgot that we had used the scale in another project, but I'm working with Dr. Um, Virginia Ramsier Winter at the University of Missouri in the Center for Body Image Research and Policy. And we use the scale to examine how people's kind of changed eating patterns as a result of COVID-19 influence their body shame. And what we found was that people who are stressed out about the pandemic are experiencing higher levels of body shame and engaging in more disordered eating behaviors. Um, so we're already seeing applications of the scale uh, moving forward. So we're trying our best to use this scale for good so that we can look at how stress responses can influence people's experiences of body shame and what the results of that are downstream. Um, but 
we're also trying not to exploit people for the sake of, you know, advancing research. It's a complicated balance, you know, because you hate to be the person that kind of looks at this as a research opportunity rather than a tragedy, but mm -hmm. also got to get that degree. So we do it. <laughs> we make sacrifices. <laughs> right. So Jacqueline, you know, um, now that we are more aware about, um, you know, the, the negative aspects of shame, especially body shame and, and these sorts of things, do you have any advice for us or, or for our listeners? Um, you know, what we might be able to do or things we might um, be able to think about in order to, to try to break this cycle of societal shaming? Hmm. Well, Good. So societal level shaming or individual kind of feeling better about yourself? Uh, I guess what I was asking is, um, are, are there things I can do to sort of make sure I don't uh, participate in the shaming of people or even sort of unconsciously? Yes, absolutely. Um, so in general, it's a good move to not talk about people's appearance. Of course, don't shame people for the way that their body looks, whether it's for their size, whether it's for their skin tone, whether it's for um, their, you know, different levels of abilities. Just like don't talk about the way that people look. Uh, in general, that's kind of a good move. People are very interesting regardless of what they look like. And what you look like is kind of the least interesting thing about you. Um, and, you know, we tend to think, okay, well, as long as I'm not insulting someone, it's not that big of a deal. But you never know how those uh, comments are going to affect people. So something that I want to talk about two particular points, the first of which is even positively valenced comments about people's bodies have been shown to result in um, increased body dissatisfaction in people. So because it calls attention to the way that your body appears, it can actually make you self-conscious. So if you look at someone and you're like, oh my goodness, wow, you know, you look smoking hot, that could actually be sexually objectifying whether or not you recognize it. But in the right. same vein, complimenting people on losing weight or, you know, in some cases on gaining weight can also influence the way that people feel about their bodies. Because, you know, I've just, you know, even anecdotally, I've been at different weights throughout my life. And there have been times when I've been really struggling with my eating disorder and people have been like, oh my goodness, look at you, you're losing so much weight, good for you. And I'm like, oh, I'm in treatment four days a week, but don't worry about it. So you never know what people are going through when you make those sorts of comments. Um, another way is, um, like, just don't comment on the types of foods that people are eating. Just kind of leave people's bodies out of the conversation so that you don't inadvertently even say something that could make someone feel ashamed about their bodies. And, okay. like, sometimes we think about fat jokes and um, kind of diet talk around other people. We talk about the ways that we're treating our bodies um, and sometimes unhealthful ways. Uh, you know, we might say something like, I'm going on a cleanse and it's going to, you know, I'm going to lose 14 pounds in seven seconds. And that can be kind of triggering and make people feel bad about the way that they're treating their bodies. So just talk about other stuff. There's so much other stuff to talk about. That's not your body. So just, just like, don't do that. <laughs> 
Okay, Jacqueline, thank you very much for sharing your research with us and for uh, for that advice. Thanks for having me on here. Happy to talk thank to you, you anytime. Jacqueline. Take care. Okay. Bye. So Jacqueline Siegel is uh, completing her PhD in social psychology, and she joined us at GradCast here online through the Western Research Forum since it's canceled. Uh, thanks for being with us. I'm Yimin, and my co-host today was Yosef. Okay, welcome again to GradCast coverage of the now canceled Western Research Forum. My name is Yemin Chen. I'll be one of your hosts here today. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And today we are here from, uh, with Marzie Sajadi from the Education Department. Uh, welcome. Uh, and how, how are you doing? Uh, thank you so much. My name is Marzie Sajadi, and I would be very happy to have an interview with you. Awesome. So we want to know, uh, how did you come to be interested in pursuing your master's in the education program and what specifically uh, is your research interest? Actually, the program that uh, now nowadays I am studying, uh, it is a course-based program, but as uh, I always been interested into research, I wanted to do this research by my own and um, the, this research is about, um, you know, the topic of my research is the experiences of women education graduates seeking a job in Ontario. Nice. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it is related uh, to um, somehow social sciences and also in education because um, for this research, I'm going to in, uh, have interviews with some uh, graduate students of education um, and um, it is also about uh, women mm -hmm. and um, how uh, is the situation of women after uh, they uh, finish their studies. So what is it about um, the experience of women um, who are looking for jobs after completing their education in education, what is it about this topic that attracts you to it? <laughs> you know, I always uh, in my life feel that uh, there is um, something that always been in me that I wanted to uh, study about women's rights. And I think that uh, in comparison to men, mm -hmm. uh, the work um, and uh, the work for women uh, is providing less uh, employment and um, um, according to my uh, some literature women's work has always uh, tended to be concentrated in a narrow set of occupations mm -hmm. and um, um, of course, the, in Canada, um, you know, the women's right is, uh, and, uh, you know, there is a, a law uh, which is pay equity to mm -hmm. women. But right. um, despite all these rules, there is always, um, um, you know, uh, it is in some literature, uh, in some researches that uh, people, um, 
mentioned uh, that there is always uh, women's work has uh, uh, has been undervaluated. Mm -hmm. And so as a woman, I think that uh, I have to write something about it. <laughs> so despite the Pay Equity Act in Ontario, despite yeah. the legislation giving some protection, there are still some worries, you say, and yeah. you want to look deeper into it specifically in education. Um, and so in what kind of questions would you be asking in the interview and how, um, what do you think would be the most relevant kinds of um, well, information that would be helpful to shed light on this issue for you? <clears throat> this, uh, this research that I have, uh, it is um, a kind of case study. And uh, in order to conduct this research, I'm going to interview uh, some women about the job interviews that they had. Oh, and, I see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to ask about that in the process of um, finding a job. Uh, did they have uh, an experience that uh, they sent something that if they were a man, they could get that job or not? Uh, so uh, I will give uh, some women uh, a set of questions and that uh, so um, they are going to answer these questions and um, I have to uh, give the women, um, uh, you know, I, I'm going to call these women and uh, ask about uh, what they experienced. And also I'm going to have, um, uh, you know, I, I'm going, uh, I want to collect data by two, by two different ways. Uh, one of them is by uh, having a telephone conversation with them. And uh, another one, I am going to have a discussion uh, so uh, I can um, learn about these women. Um, um, I, yeah, I, I guess uh, that, that's really fascinating. I was wondering, uh, in addition to interviewing women, would you also, for example, women, some men as well, just to see how their experiences actually differ from the kinds of lived experiences from women in seeking these jobs and maybe find two different patterns given uh, the gender differences or some other differences as well? Sorry, I didn't get your question. Oh, I, my question, sorry. Um, my question was, in addition to interviewing women, would you also interview some uh, men as well, just to see how their experiences kind of differ? Uh, that might <laughs> shed some light on, you know, uh, to really hash out the differences. Yeah, the, no, actually, <laughs> no, um, my plan is uh, some telephone interviews. And I also have um, a focus, focus group interview. Okay. So, so some women uh, who are graduated from education field are going to sit down by each other and share their experiences um, about uh, what they had in, in the past. And um, so I am not going to make uh, a conclusion out of uh, what um, I am collecting because my research is a qualitative research and right. I know that um, 
maybe uh, I can't generalize my ideas into um, something big, but I am just uh, going to um, describe what these women uh, experienced in the past. And I hope that maybe this can be helpful. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, Marzia, uh, based yes. on some of your research so far, some of the literature that you've looked at, um, can you tell us a little bit about what sorts of challenges or difficulties or, or perhaps discrimination um, women do face in something like the job search uh, process? Uh, yeah, um, actually it is uh, mentioned that um, even, you know, some of my friends who are uh, graduated recently mm -hmm. from universities, uh, they had uh, some difficulties uh, finding a job uh, which is related uh, to education field. And mm -hmm. um, some of uh, the literature uh, will suggest that um, the women who are um, immigrants here have more difficulties even than uh, the white-born Canadians. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, uh, but I am not going uh, to um, uh, deal with this problem. I, I am just um, compa comparing the chances of men and the chances of women. Um, and it's, the literature shows that um, in, um, there is, um, that uh, there is a discrimination, um, but you know, maybe this discrimination is not elaborated and maybe, um, you know, they can express it, you know, in, uh, at the end of the job interviews, uh, mm -hmm. Nobody say you that uh, you are not getting a job because you are a woman. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But so, I am just uh, describing that what happened in during this inter this interview, and uh, maybe I am going to um, show some uh, statistics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like you were saying, it's not um, just sort of overt, really obvious discrimination. Um, no yeah. one's going to say that we're not going to hire you because you're a woman, but there's smaller things that maybe uh, unconscious bias or, or many other issues that are standing in the way of sort of full equity yeah. in kind of the hiring process. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So. Uh, how uh, are you going to be selecting uh, your participants for this sort of research? Um, actually, as uh, the legislations are different in different provinces of Canada, mm -hmm. so I had to choose um, one province. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I, pro I chose uh, Ontario, Ontario mm -hmm. because um, it has uh, some uh, outstanding uh, universities in the education field and uh, from um, uh, the universities of Ontario I choose the best ones in education and so uh, I am going to write down uh, to universities and ask uh, about uh, some um, graduate students some alumni mm -hmm. uh, and um, I want uh, 
uh, to uh, send them some emails and uh, they are, if they are okay uh, to have an interview with me, it would be perfect. Awesome. And one of the, these universities is Western. Awesome. <laughs> so we're running out of time. I guess I have uh, one more question. Um, so what are you roughly expecting uh, in terms of results from the interviews and how do you think your research will um, will further expand based on those sort of uh, results that you might be think are likely? And do you have some future proposals as well, sort of expansions on the works that you're doing right now, for example? Um, so you're asking that um, for my um, future, Suggestion mm -hmm. for other researchers? Yeah, I mean, uh, what are your future? I what do you think you'd be doing in future as well after a few months? Given that you've conducted, you might be able to conduct some interviews. You might have some idea of what to expect from the, those interviews. Yeah, actually, I am uh, so interested uh, mm -hmm. about women studies, and also uh, as my uh, field is education and uh, so i like to expand it and um yeah and i also want uh, to study um for phd awesome yeah i really like it and so um i want to do um, in i want to do more researches um in these subjects Great. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Marzia, for uh, joining us and telling us about your work today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marzia. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your producer, Gavin Telemedi, and I was joined with hosts Yemen Chen and Yusuf Hassan. If you would like to learn more about the show or become a guest, or maybe join the committee, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at gradcastradio. You can also find select episodes on our YouTube channel at gradcastradio. If you'd like to find more of our episodes online, you can go to our website, gradcast.ca, or you can go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and have a great night.